Today's text is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. The sermon is entitled, New Wine into New Wineskins. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? John said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch is for the patch pulls away from the garment and a a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. You may be seated. Many of you have probably read this morning's passage sometime in the past. There's a very famous passage and the phrase new wine into new uh, new wine into old wineskins is well known among many English speakers. But this morning's passage is of much debate among Bible scholars. I also will admit that it is a hard passage to decipher. Number one, Jesus is obviously not being literal here. So that makes it difficult. We must ask ourselves several important questions as a result. The ultimate question that Jesus will settle with this morning's passage is the question, should Christians fast underneath the new covenant. Remember, that, that's the issue that they're tangling with here. You've you got to understand that. You can't just read this text and say, well, well he's talking about wineskin. No, the, the point of this passage is the initial question. And it deals with fasting. Was it biblical for Christians to fast in the New Testament? As Christians, should we be fasting? Fasting, by the way, is the abstinence of food and any type of fruit or vegetable beverage. Is the drinking of water only, and normally a fast is at least 24 hours from sunrise to sundown. Uh, I mean sunrise to sunrise the next morning. Was it biblical for Christians to fast in the New Testament era? In route to answering this question, several other questions are raised by this morning's passage. We could ask, just who exactly are the bridegroom and the attendants? Who does the bridegroom represent? Or we could ask, what what does the unshrunk cloth and the old garment represent? And finally, we could also ask the famous question, what do the old wineskins 
and the new wine represent? Or what do you think? You probably read this passage many times. If I just gave you a diagnostic exam today before explaining the text, what would your gut reaction be? What, what, up until this point, what did you think each one represented? Well, there are some practical aspects here that are easy to understand, so let's clear those up first in our exposition of the text. We all know that if a new strong piece of cloth is sewn onto an old worn out garment, then the new patch, when it happens to get damp or happens to spread out, stretch or contract will invariably pull on the threads of the old garment. When this happens, it will tear the old garment, thus causing a greater tear, as Jesus states in verse 16. This principle is well known today as it was in ancient time. Many within the clothing industry today have tried to avert such occurrences by creating what's known as the pre-shrunk fabric. Pre-shrunk fabrics are fabrics that have been subjected to a shrinking process so that when the garment is washed, it will not contract as much. I always try to buy pre-shrunk cotton. That way, the shirts fit for much longer. Next, we move on to verse 17 to read about wine and old wine skins. In those days, wine was kept in leather bottles, which for the most part were made of goat skins. In fact, our English word bottle originally meant le leather bottle. In Spanish, Bota means a leather bottle or a boot in Spain. Wine in Spain was brought to the market in pigskins. In Jewish culture, the rough side was on the inside of these bottles, and this practice of using goatskin is still found among many people today as they carry wine around. Some of these bottles carry up to 60 gallons of wine, over long distances on the backs of camels. Now, with this use, these leather, leather bottles would become tender. Think about a baseball glove or a nice belt. With use, it becomes tender. And if new wine were to be put into old wineskins, they would rupture. Why? Because new wine would ferment and the swelling will eventually cause the old leather to crack and break. Hence, as Christ says in verse 17, new wine should go into new wineskins in order to preserve both. So, there you have it. I've established the easily explained historical aspects of the text. And now we move on to the symbolism. What do the items represent? Well, if you're like many, and if you were like me prior to preparing for this sermon, many believe that the new wine is the new covenant, and that the old wineskin is the old covenant. Or to put it another way, if you don't like using words like covenant... Many believe that the new wine is Christianity 
and that the old wineskin is Judaism. So underneath this view, Jesus is saying that you can't mix Christianity with Judaism. You can't take elements of Judaism and just mix it with Christianity. That it's wrong for Christians to circumcise, abstain from eating pork. Um, uh, I mean, uh, it's wrong for them to eat pork and, and that it is wrong for them to not observe the Sabbath or Old Testament Jewish festivals. There are a lot of Christians, quote-unquote Christians, who cl- proclaim that today. In fact, they made a documentary. Um, this group made a documentary where they came and interviewed me about this question. Why do Christians not celebrate Old Testament Jewish feasts? And so these Christians purport that Christians ought to still celebrate Passover and and the whole nine yards. Underneath this view, the lesson behind Jesus' teaching would be, don't tell my disciples to fast. That's an old covenant practice that is no longer applicable for Christians. By adding fasting to Christianity, you are messing up Christianity. So if you espouse the view that the old wineskin represents Judaism and the new wine represents Christianity, that would be your lesson from today's text. That Jesus is saying, don't give us Old Testament uh, Judaic principles and mingle it with Christianity because you mess up the whole thing. But there is another perspective out there. Other theologians believe that Jesus is not comparing Old and New Covenants but that he is differentiating between the old way of life and the new way of the kingdom. Now, depending on which you choose, today's sermon will have massive ramifications. In fact, if you take the first perspective and you really think about it and then you, you seek to apply it, you might not even fast anymore because you believe that it's an Old Testament practice that's no longer applicable for New Testament Christians. Or, if you don't wish to fully fast from fasting, but you hold the first perspective that I just shared with you, then you might merely marginalize fasting as an optional, unimportant (coughs) spiritual practice. (coughs) I'm going to give you a couple of excerpts here just to show you that this view is held by many respected sources. The Cambridge Bible for schools and colleges take the first perspective. Listen to how they explain the text. I'm not sure if we put it. Yep, here we go. The new wine is the new law. The freedom of Christianity. The new bottles are those fitted to live under that law. The old wine is Judaism. The old bottles, those who trained in Judaism, cannot receive the new law, who say the old is better or good, which they're quoting Luke 5.39. Okay, so again, here, the new bottles uh, or the new law is is the freedom, the new wine is the freedom of Christianity. The old wine or the old bottles, Judaism. Okay? ESV Study Bible also adopts this view. Listen to what they say. 
Rather than patching up the traditional practices of righteousness within religious Judaism, the old bottle, Jesus has come to offer real growth in kingdom righteousness, which is like when new wine is put into fresh wineskins. Instead of trying to mingle Christianity with Judaism, religious Judaism, Jesus puts, gives us new wine, new wineskin. Okay, so respected scholars are out there believing and holding to this first perspective. However, after preparing this sermon, I believe there is a problem with that first perspective. Now, to be quite honest, I haven't, prior to preparing this sermon, this was a text that I just sort of read by and never gave it too much thought, which is part of the problem. And it led to me superficially believing this ESV Cambridge Bible College view. I always thought that the old wine was the old covenant, the old bottle was the old covenant, the new wine was Christianity. Don't mingle the two. That's what I thought. But once you do sermon prep, you got to really be thorough, and I realized there is a problem with this perspective. If you believe that the old garment and old wineskin are both representative of Judaism, and you therefore also say that fasting is inappropriate for the New Testament Christian, you end up with a conclusion that makes either fasting obsolete or marginalizes it. Here's why. Today's account is found in all three synoptic Gospels. Synoptic meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In all three texts, the teaching of the garment patch and the wineskins are found as an answer within the context of the verse 14 question. This is very important. When you do reading comprehension, you have to always read for context. If you don't read for context, you will not do proper hermeneutics. So listen to the context of verse 14. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus' response to that question is not only verse 15, but all of 15 through 17. Now why is that important? What we see in Jesus' response, that he do, what we see is that He does not ban fasting for His followers. In fact, in verse 15, he explicitly states that after his resurrection and ascension, Christians will fast. Do you see that? It's just that while he's on earth with his disciples, as long as he, the bridegroom, is with them on the earth, then they will not fast. But after his ascension, Jesus says that they will fast. So he's not banning fasting, even within the context of the same text. And for evidence of this, take a look at these post-resurrection New Testament verses, which plainly tell us that Christians fasted. Acts 13.2 While they were worshiping the Lord and what? Fasting. 
the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. What we see in that verse is that the church in Antioch, as they fasted, the Lord gave them guidance. This is true for your lives. If you need guidance, especially with regard to a big decision in life, pray and fast. That's when the Holy Spirit often comes in and then says, this is the way you ought to go. As a result of worship and fasting, the Holy Spirit changed the face of world missions forever by setting apart Barnabas and Paul for the work of missionary evangelism. you got to believe that was a result of fasting. Here's another text, Acts 14.23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. They put their trust in Jesus and they fasted. This is clearly a New Testament discipline. There we see that fasting was used prior to an ordination service. This is an ordination service. In a few weeks we might see here at Mustard Seed. This is an ordination service so that the elders would be consecrated unto the Lord for the work of church leadership. And preceding the ordination of the elders, the ordaining one prayed and fasted. My point is simple. Fasting is not some aspect of Pharisaical Judaism that ought to be discarded by Christians. Instead, the New Testament shows us that Christians clearly fasted in the days after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in verse 15, the days will come when they will fast. Do you see that? He says that. Jesus says, the days will come when all of you as Christians will fast. And as a matter of fact, in his Sermon on the Mount, which we studied a few weeks ago, Matthew 6.16 does not say, but if you fast. Instead, Jesus says, but when you fast. Don't fast like the hypocrites. Wash your face. Anoint yourself. Go to work. Seem like nothing's off. Don't try to get accolade and props for fasting. Don't let anybody know you're fasting. Matthew 6.16 When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So if fasting is expected of Christians, then the explanation that the old garment and the old wineskin represent Judaism is not tenable. Also, it helps to notice that in verse 14, the disciples of John are asking the question, not the Pharisees. Do you see that there? These are not bad men. These are godly men. This, plus the fact that Jesus in verse 15 says that His disciples will one day fast, both work to show me that Jesus is referring to, to the doctrine of fasting in verse 16, 
when he refers to a patch of unshrunk cloth. So here we go. The patch of unshrunk cloth, what does it represent? Fasting. And, as a corollary, other such doctrines. Let me explain. First of all, here's a question for you. Has the doctrine of fasting changed since the days of the Old Testament? I'm not talking about the day of fasting for Yom Kippur. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about fasting as a practice, as a spiritual discipline. Has, has that changed? Has the doctrine that undergirds Old Testament fasting changed from the Old to the New Testament? What do you think? I would say no. Just because we're New Testament Christians does not mean that we now fast in a different way. For example, let me show you how and why Ezra fasted in the Old Testament. Let's go to Ezra chapter 8, verses 22 to 23. Do you see that? I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on, on the road. Because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and He answered our prayer. So here's the deal here. Ezra is trying to go to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. He asked the Persian king, he doesn't ask the Persian king for soldiers and protection. And the reason for it is because he wants to make God look great. And one of the ways God looks great is when a weak, fledgling bunch of Jews return back to their homeland unprotected, except for God's protection. And so, Ezra says, No king, we don't need protection. God will protect us. And as a result, he doesn't ask for any soldiers or protection. But he knows that the road is dangerous. So here's what Ezra does. He fasts and he prays so that God will protect him on his journey and that God will bless his endeavor. Now here's a question. Is it wrong for New Testament Christians to fast for these motives or similar motives? Do we not also fast when we undertake a new endeavor or seek the Lord's protection? That's what I mean. I, the doctrine of fasting has not really changed from the Old and New Testaments. God still delights in answering us when we fast and pray. Now let me just give you a contemporary example. Many of you know that last month, former Governor Sonny Perdue, Georgian Governor Sonny Perdue, a faithful Southern Baptist, was nominated to President Trump's cabinet as the Agricultural Secretary. But here's a story you might not know. In November of 2007, the state of Georgia was experiencing the worst drought in 50 years and was in a state of emergency. Without rain, the state was in a drought for weeks. About an hour and a half north of Atlanta, the water level of Lake Lanier was more than 16 feet below capacity. Trees were jutting out of the water and boat ramps stopped several feet above water level. So, what did the Georgian governor do? Who's a, who's a faithful Christian? What did he do? 
He arranged a prayer meeting outside the state capital. I think it was a three-day prayer meeting to ask God for rain. Some 250 people showed up. Three different Protestant ministers were there exhorting the congregation. And here's the excerpt from November 14, 2007. And this is from a liberal source. It's from NPR.org. So, you know, they're not going to try to favor Christianity. Here's what they reported. Lakes and rivers have fallen to record low levels in Georgia, Alabama, and Florida, states hit hard by severe drought in the south. Most farmers have been forced to rely on irrigation if they have it, and water restrictions put in place months ago don't seem to be enough to conserve resources. At the state capitol in Georgia today, the governor tried something different. On a partly cloudy, warm fall day, hundreds of people from the region came to join Governor Sonny Perdue in a prayer service for rain. I'm here today to appeal to you and to all Georgians and and all people who believe in the power of prayer to ask God to shower our state, our region, our nation with the blessings of water, Perdue said. One day, one day after the prayer meeting, it rained. And then in December, because this was November, and then in December, it kept raining. I'm not sure if they fasted. The news outlets didn't say, but I'm sure many people were fasting. And guess what? God answered. Listen to this from the Christian Index. Things turned around in December as Atlanta collected 4.78 inches of precipitation, rain, compared to 3.08 the year before. The month also finished as the area's third highest rainfall total in a decade. Though helped by December's contribution, in 2007, the Atlanta area would receive only 31.85 inches of rain, its lowest total since the 31.8 inches in 1954, obviously because December is the last month of the year. After a slow start in January, precipitation for February through May 2008 beat the previous year's monthly totals. The Atlanta area would go on to finish with nearly 10 inches more rain than in 2007. By the end of 2009, precipitation totals had more than doubled since two years earlier as Atlanta finished with 69.43 inches. According to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that amount signaled the most annual rainfall for the area since 1948. Hallelujah. And of course the liberals were laughing. They were, in fact, they were not just laughing, they were protesting separation of church and state that the governor would actually ask God, have the audacity to ask God for rain. They were doing all forms of nonsense. But I, I pulled up this news event from, for this sermon because I actually remembered listening to news radio and hearing about it several years ago when this was occurring. I was thinking to myself, what in the world? What governor in the present-day U.S. actually calls, calls a day of prayer for rain? 
Can you imagine Andrew Cuomo doing that? How awesome is this? Can you imagine de Blasio doing that? It was refreshing to hear about an elected official using his office to call people people to repentance and prayer. What Governor Perdue did was he took Deuteronomy 11.17 seriously. And he called upon the only one who could produce rain. Who's the only one who could produce rain? God. God. He didn't think, oh, I'm the governor. I'm too important. I'm too grown up to pray. He didn't do that. He humbled himself, went out there at the risk of looking like a fool in front of liberals, got the entire state together, and he called for prayer for rain. Why? Because here's what Deuteronomy 11.7 says. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and He will shut up the heavens so it will not rain. And the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. So do you want God's presence and blessing upon your life? Start by believing in the gospel. What is the gospel? Number one, God is holy, righteous, and just, but He must send every sinner to hell. Number two, we are all sinners who deserve infinite punishment in hell from God for our sins. But number three, God loved you so much, He sent His only Son, Jesus, fully God and fully man, to die on the cross for your sins. Three days later, He resurrected from the grave. Then number four, if you would repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord God and Savior, you will have eternal life. That is the gospel. It begins with you believing in that gospel and God will bless your life. doesn't mean He's going to make you rich, but He'll bless you. It starts with faith in the gospel. Now, today's sermon is an important lesson. It's not an important lesson on the difference of Judaism versus Christianity, as some may claim. But it's an important lesson on the wisdom of gradual training. I believe that's the lesson of today's text. I believe that today's text is about wise pedagogy. The new patch of cloth and the new wine both represent sound, spiritually mature doctrines such as fasting. These are good doctrines. Doctrines that ought to be practiced in the New Testament era. It is a good doctrine and a good spiritual discipline that was practiced by both the religious Jews, the disciples of John, and also New Testament Christians. Hence, it is an unequivocally good doctrine. Sometimes we are to abstain from all foods and drink, and drink only water, um, in order to strengthen our prayer lives, consecrate our work, uh, ourselves to God, ask for God's blessing on, on our endeavors, ask for rain. Abraham Lincoln would call fast during the Civil War and and to gain favor from God, to repent of our sins. Nineveh fasted after the preaching of Jonah. The disciples were just beginning, however, their walks with Christ. And so, having said all that about fasting, and it's a good doctrine, Nevertheless, fasting is a difficult and advanced doctrine for a young believer. Is it not? The disciples were just beginning their walks with Christ. How do I know that? 
Last week's sermon, again, context. Matthew, a complete sinner and tax collector, was just called to be a follower of Christ just last week. Uh, I mean, in last week's text. In fact, this teaching might have occurred in Matthew's house the very day he converted. As with all new believers, Matthew and the other disciples needed time for growth before receiving advanced doctrines. Thus, during their three years with Jesus, they did not fast. Jesus did not make them fast. As long as Christ was with them, they were still undergoing the joyous training through the seminary of Jesus. The American Standard Version, I think, gets verse 16 right. This morning I used the NASB translation, which reads, But no one puts a patch. I don't like that word, but. I don't like it, because in this text, it kind of shows a converse, like almost a transition of a topic. It's not. It ought to be. The Greek is a conjunction in that verse, and, and I do agree that sometimes that conjunction could be translated but, but in this context, the ASV is right, and it ought to be, and no one puts a patch. Why? Because he's continuing to answer his question on fasting. He's not beginning a new teaching here. And no one puts a patch. And the patch is, is referring to fasting. Because it is a continuation of his teaching in verse 15. Just as his disciples will one day mature and fast when, three years later, when Christ is taken away from them into heaven, likewise, we are to carefully wait to give advanced doctrine to advanced Christians. Do not give new students advanced doctrines or else it will destroy them. Just as new wine destroys old wine bags. Now are you getting it? Now are you getting it? The teaching goes something like this. Advanced doctrine for advanced students. New patches for new garments. New wine for new wineskin. That's how it goes. As we grow in Christ, the old man is continually being replaced with the new, thread by thread. The process is called sanctification. The old threads in the garment is being replaced by new threads. And the old bottle is becoming new and is soon able to handle strong new wine. Matthew couldn't handle the doctrine of fasting back then. For crying out loud, he and his friends were eating and drinking when Christ called them into, from, from their old life. And Jesus doesn't give him a doctrine of fasting. He doesn't say to Matthew, Oh, I appreciate you, Matthew, inviting me to your house with this great feast. I know you're used to doing things that way, and that's the way you're accustomed to, but now you must fast. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not austere with this babe in the faith. Instead, He joins them in eating and in drinking. He goes to this honey hole filled with sinners, and He doesn't make everyone fast prior to even giving them the gospel. He and his friends were eating and drinking when Christ called them out of the old life. It would take time. The gospel writer, Luke, is the only one who has this interesting extra addition to the end of this teaching. This is fascinating. 
But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Uh, people have interpreted, interpreted that last verse, verse 39, in all sorts of weird ways. Here's what I think it means. No one, after just coming out of an old life of eating and drinking, wishes for advanced doctrine. Matthew, after coming out of life of eating and drinking as a tax collector, would not have desired for advanced doctrine, for new wine. For he is still accustomed to many of the old patterns of thought. But although Matthew and his friends were drinking and eating that day, which in and of itself is not sinful, as long as you're not getting drunk, right? They would, however, eventually learn to fast and pray. But Jesus did everything at the right time. Because He knew that if He gave them the advanced, drink, uh, the advanced doctrine of fasting, if He gave them the new wine, Matthew would have said, No, the old is good enough. But in time He won't. For in time He will grow. Jesus did everything at the right time. He waited to give advanced heavy doctrine. We too must teach wisely. This is not an isolated text. Listen to these verses. John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus Himself. You want to hear this? Listen to this. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. What does that mean? That means that Jesus had a lot of stuff He wanted to say to His disciples, but they just were not ready for it. So He didn't say it. He didn't teach it to them. 1 Corinthians 3.2 Paul, using apostolic wisdom, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready yet for solid food. Which means that there is a time for solid food. Which also means that if you try to give a baby solid food when he's not ready, just like Jesus said, both the doctrine, the, the patch, the wine, and the bottle will be destroyed. Grew up with children when they were very young. I wouldn't dare give them solid food, milk. But we all rejoice the day when they first ate solid food. It, it, was, a, it was a milestone. So we too as Christians rejoice when, as a church, we are becoming mature and ready to deal with and eat solid doctrine, more mature doctrine. But as a teacher and as a pastor, I must know when to dispense it at the right time. This is not to say that we avoid hard teachings of Christ. Jesus said never to be ashamed of His words. What I am saying is that we need to be wise. And that certainly from Scripture we see that there is a time and place for everything. Certain doctrines need to be taught in the front end because we must repent and turn to Christ. But other doctrines, we must wait to give it to them when they're ready, not when they're young, not when they're spiritual babies. They can't handle it. It's going to destroy them. If you're a teacher, know your students. Be wise. 
Don't give a, a fourth grader calculus. Won't do her any good. You do greater harm by giving students more than they can bear. I think Matthew Henry gets it right. Here's what he said. He takes my view of today's text. Here's Matthew Henry. Nor would men put new wine into old leathern bottles, which are going to decay and would be liable to burst from the fermenting of the wine. But putting the new wine into new strong skin bottles, both would be preserved. Great caution and prudence are necessary that young converts may not receive gloomy and forbidding ideas of the service of our Lord. But duties are to be urged as they are able to bear them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for today's text. 